The Bizix Podcast is a production of Bizix LLC, all rights reserved. Please join us at www.bizix.com for additional resources to make your business strong, growing, and profitable. We have it down to a science. In our first episode of the Bizix Podcast, we're joined by scientist Marcus Mendenhall, Marcus is a friend from many years ago and a researcher at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Marcus shares my interest in parsing through the limits of using scientific terms in business settings. Episode 1 focused on scientific terminology in general and the two basic variables in the momentum equation, mass and velocity. We set the table for future focused discussions on some of the topics with the underlying question, how far can you take it? And do you end up at a place that is useful to improve performance and build momentum in your business? During our interview, we had the opportunity to explore related topics that ultimately affect momentum, friction, inertia, leverage, and what happens when an object in motion hits an obstacle. We spent a little time talking about changing direction when an object is on the move. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Specialized Momentum Topics. We will start with friction, which tends to rub leaders the wrong way but maybe some of it is necessary to get on the move. Well, maybe we could talk a little bit about friction. I think that is not only a part of the whole momentum equation, I would think that always comes into play what level of friction you're experiencing, but it's also just one of those terms you hear in business all the time, you know, that there's friction in the organization or, you know, you want to reduce friction and make everything smooth and fast and all that type of thing. So, just maybe give me a as layman's a definition as possible of what friction is. Yeah, and, and there are many different kinds of friction that can be described, some of which are more meaningful than others here. The two big differences to think about in terms of friction are whether you're talking about what's called sliding friction. So if you take a cabinet and push it across the floor and it drags, and so you've got to push hard to make it keep moving. And as soon as you let go, it starts to slow down and stops quickly or immediately, maybe even well, nearly immediately. It can't be immediate, but it can stop very quickly. So that's what's called sliding friction. On the other hand, when you're pushing the cabinet, your shoes are stuck to the floor and maybe not sliding at all. And that's another kind of friction that's called static friction. And these two have somewhat different characteristics, although eventually if you push too hard, your shoes will start to slip. Static friction, in most cases where one thinks about it, is a good thing. It's how hard your tires in your car are gripping the road. So if you have a large amount of static friction, it means you can push very hard, and static friction doesn't waste any energy. One of the things that's on the edge of this discussion is the fact that kinetic energy or work is force times distance. Most people have heard this this relationship. If you're pushing with your tires and they're not sliding with respect to the road or pushing with your shoes, pushing something across the floor and they aren't sliding, there's no distance involved as far as they're moving across the floor. You pick your shoe up and put it down at another point on the floor, but as long as it's not sliding, you're not losing anything due to the static friction. On the other hand, the sliding friction, where you're actually moving across the floor, the cabinet, which is sliding across the floor, or if you've hit the brakes too hard in your car and are sliding, this is dynamic friction, sliding friction, and it does cause loss of energy. Now, if you're trying to stop a car and want to dissipate energy to bring it to a stop, this may be a good thing, but if you're trying to push a cabinet across the floor, 
it causes loss of energy. So you would want you would want as a high a level as possible of static friction as you prepare to push the cabinet. I mean, you want your shoes to have a lot of static friction. Right, you want right. the cabinet to have as little of any kind of friction right. as, as you can. You want to be to- uh, you know, as, as grounded as possible to make the right, push. Yeah. And, and an example of an extreme case of this, if you imagine that you've got cleats on your shoes, so that the cleats are actually dug into the ground, you can have extremely high ability to push something. A soccer player running across the soccer field can stop quickly, can turn quickly because the cleats bite into the ground, but it's not costing them any energy. The friction, this is not friction dissipating stuff. It's because they don't actually move once the cleats bite in. And so a soccer player isn't exhausted by having really good cleats on his shoes. Again, the static friction does not cause any loss of energy, of kinetic energy. Just to extend that analogy of a football player, maybe with cleats, and you're dug in and you have to move the blocking sled across the field. The blocking sled would burn up your personal energy as you're trying Because to- it's actually moving. It, it's sliding. So its friction is, be, is converting its kinetic energy to heat. Because that's, again, this dynamic friction, the sliding friction, uh, rather than this sort of static or the friction of being engaged to another object. And gears, in effect, are something you can make really watch gears, which have extremely low friction. They're very slippery, and yet they can transmit force because the teeth engage. It's like cleats. It's the same principle. Right. It bites. Yeah. 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 It just kind of bites down, and I get that. And some people may like to complain about inertia, but it's probably friction that should concern them the most, especially as their organization starts to grow, if the science is applicable, that is. I wanted to talk a little bit, too, about just the difference between inertia and stationary objects, or maybe kind of pick that apart for people that are listening, what inertia really is and how it might compare to something that's just stuck, I guess, for lack of a better scientific term. Okay, and here it will be really important to fall back on what we just said about things like friction and all that, because it's easy to mistake other things for inertia. Inertia, to some extent, is mass. A big object has a lot of inertia, and that means that if you push on it and want to get it up to a given speed, you've got to push either hard or for a long time. If an object has a low mass, it has low inertia, and it turns out there's a very deep equivalence between mass and inertia in relativity. And so these these are almost exactly the same concept. Now, if you have a cabinet sitting on the floor, again, that there's a lot of friction, you could push on it as long as you want, as long as you're not, and if you don't push hard enough to get it to come unstuck, it's going nowhere. That's not inertia. That's friction. Okay. So inertia is easy to visualize Again, if you're on ice or you have something sitting, uh, boats, ships are very subject to the rules of, to just unmodified rules of inertia because they coast in the water. You give a ship a push and it's going to keep, just keep going. The water, it turns out, for something the size of a ship is very nearly frictionless. That can be a good and a bad thing because it means this is why ships have collisions because it is perfectly inertial. And if a ship is coasting along and sees another ship and doesn't have a big enough engine to stop it, there's no friction available to help you slow down. If you're already moving, you'll keep moving. And because of the mass of a typical ship, it's got a whole lot of inertia and it takes a long time. And for example, typically ships, well, I would make the statement that ships don't have very big engines on the scale of what we think about. They're absolutely honking big engines. But if you compare them to the size of the ship, they're really tiny. Your car engine fills up, you know, what, a fourth of the front of, it fills up the front of your car. 
A ship engine is nothing like that because a ship can push over, they take a long time to accelerate a freight liner. They go out to sea and they push very gently relative to their mass. And so they accelerate really slowly. They have a lot of inertia, but once you get them going, they just keep on coasting. They're pretty much perfect examples of Newton's laws. So how would inertia be different than weight then? Well, again, inertia is almost exactly the same as mass, not weight. A a ship on the moon would have the same inertia as a ship on Earth, just a lot less weight. Okay. I guess the big takeaway would be that inertia, by definition on its own, doesn't have really anything to do with friction per se. Right. Something that's stationary or stuck, friction is probably going to be the biggest yes. weight will be involved, but friction is going to be like the main thing you're trying to figure out how to overcome to get it moving. Right. Yeah. Okay. In, in a system without friction, and this is something that a little bit of was recognized, even Archimedes, I think, had the statement, give me a lever big enough and I can move the earth. A human, well, I said, well, if you jump off the earth, you have given the earth momentum exactly equal and opposite to what you got. The earth has a whole lot of inertia, which means that that momentum is associated with a tiny speed but you nonetheless gave the earth momentum. You pushed against its inertia and you gave it that much momentum. So even tiny forces can eventually build up motion in objects with a lot of inertia. It just takes time. And and again, this is kind of the ship that the ocean liner analogy that an ocean liner may take a miles to come up to speed. And even that's not very fast, but they accelerate very slowly. But when they're done, they've got a lot of momentum. It was crystal clear to me that to get most anything moving, someone or something was going to have to apply force to it. All kinds of management styles come to mind when I place that idea in business or organizational settings. I mainly wondered about things that are too massive to move on your own and how leverage works as a multiplier. After listening to Marcus, I decided that leverage is a term used incorrectly more often than momentum. We'll definitely revisit this one in future podcasts. Just thinking about This is more of an organizational business kind of idea, but the whole idea of getting things going and creating movement and the idea of leverage. I think you shared with me that leverage is really defined in a ratio or can you talk to us a little bit more about leverage and what it is? Yeah, A lever is a device that lets you convert one amount of force moving one distance into a different amount of force moving a different distance. And it turns out the multi, the product of those two has to be the same. So if I take a lever, what's called a 10 to 1 lever, it means that, for example, if I put a lever under my car and it has a 10 to 1 ratio of leverages with me having what's called the large mechanical advantage, if I put, let's say it's a, a two-ton car, so it weighs 4,000 pounds. Well, if it's 10 to 1 lever, if I put 400 pounds of weight on the lever – and move it down a foot, the car, which weighs 4,000 pounds, will go up a tenth of a foot. So the product of the force and distance, which incidentally is work, which comes back to things like kinetic energy and all that, is the same on both ends of a lever. And so with a lever, you can convert a large motion distance of a gentle force into a small motion distance of a huge force. And that's what a lever does. It, It converts work into sort of different appearances. You've done the same work on both ends of the lever. One end you've pushed gently for a large distance. The other end you've pushed hard for a short distance. This might be too esoteric question. I don't know, but what would be the properties of a lever that would 
define the ratio. Well, it's where it's where you stick the pivot in under the lever. What's the fulcrum of the lever? So if if the two ends of a lever, if you have a seesaw with the same arm length on both sides, you get the same force and distance on both ends. But if you were to have a seesaw that one arm were twice as long as the other, then you can put a light kit on the long arm and a heavy kit on the short arm and they'll still balance. It's just the ratio of the two lengths of the arms across the fulcrum. Business can be such a fluid environment, changing directions based on new opportunities or unwanted vector forces such as economic conditions or crazy competitors. What should we understand about changing direction from a physics standpoint? One of the things I wanted to talk about is change of direction. I think we hit, hit on this already when we were talking about velocity, that all the vectors that are in the field where an object is can move it in different directions. And I think you talked at that time, I just want to revisit it about the sum force of vectors and the way it affects an object that's trying to make a move. So if I had an object that I was trying to move in a different direction, I would have to change the direction of my force or bring in a separate force on it to kind of push it over to where I wanted it to go. Is that? Uh, yeah, we need to be a little terminology conscious here because, of course, your force doesn't move it. It accelerates it. It changes its speed. And the longer you apply the force, the more it changes. So, yeah, but just putting a force on something doesn't cause it to immediately move. It causes it to start accelerating in that direction, assuming it's not being hindered by friction or something. So, but yes, if, if you want to change the direction, if you have an object, for the moment, maybe we should stick to objects on ice where the friction is very low and it's easy to talk about the way forces yeah. behave. Yeah. And so if you have an object moving along on, on ice and you give it a shove sideways, its direction will change because you've changed its momentum, you've applied a force to it. And then if, if, if somebody else gives it a shove in another direction, its direction will change again. Anytime you apply a force to it that's not pointing all the, the direction it's already going, it will change its direction. And, and it could be a sum of a lot of different nudges, I guess. Right, <laughs> yeah. Right. right. I think you said it would always be the sum total of all the vectors that were being applied. Or So, and again, here, let's be careful what we're saying is that sum total. So the acceleration of the object in a given direction is the sum total of all those force vectors pushing on it. So if, if you have two force vectors, for example, that are pushing, one's pushing forward and one's pushing backwards and they have the same magnitude, these add up to zero. And so if you're pushing front and back on something, it's not going to change its speed. Again, we're on ice. Everything can slide right. continuously. So right. if you have two people on ice pushing on something in between them by the same amount, uh, the thing in between them won't care. It'll just keep on sliding. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. right, I get and what about obstacles, those unexpected objects right in your path? What is in play when we hit the wall? You have an object moving in a certain direction and it hits an obstacle. You know, maybe this is where the whole thing might break down. It's not really momentum, I don't know. But in that case, it would transfer its momentum into a stationary, not moving object. It may move that object back after it hits it or tear it apart or whatever, but is that kind of along the lines of uh, the zero-sum game, I guess what I'm asking? Well, is the more important thing about, about the zero-sum game is the fact that you can stand, if you're on ice again, let's say, so that we're forgetting friction, and there are two uh, weights on opposite sides of you, you can stand and even though you're not, a, you're very, it's slippery ice, so if you push on yourself, you'll go skating off, 
But if you stand and put your two arms out sideways and push on two equal objects on opposite sides of you, you can push both of them away from you. You won't go anywhere because the zero-sum game, the equal and opposite forces, the force on you is the sum of the force on the object to your left and the object to your right. So you'd be transferring the momentum. Well, what you're doing is you're giving one object a positive momentum and the other object a negative momentum. And by positive and negative, let's imagine we're only thinking in one direction. So you're giving, let's say you're pushing east and west. You're giving one an object and momentum to the east and the other an object and momentum to the west. These are now valid vectors. And if they're the same momentum, they add up to zero. And that means that the force on you who's doing this is zero. You go nowhere. You don't, you don't actually go sliding off on the ice. Now, if you just push one of those objects, you're going to recoil and go sliding backwards away from it. But you can push two objects. You can give each of them momentum. And it seems like you're creating momentum out of nothing here. But what you're doing is giving them equal and opposite momentum. And because you're allowed to have the momentum add up to zero, no total momentum appeared anywhere in this problem. It all adds up to zero, and you're allowed to do this. You don't have to, you don't have to go sliding off somewhere to take extra momentum. Let's say you're, you're sliding along the ice, and you hit a igloo on the, on the ice yeah. or something. <laughs> so that contact basically could send you in the opposite direction where you came from. So it would throw you backwards. And the only way to make that work is that, well, if the igloo is attached to the ice so it can't slide away, right. you had to give the earth some extra momentum. So that momentum didn't disappear. You gave it to the earth, and so you bounce back. You now have changed your momentum to where it's pointing the other way, and that means that the earth is actually, in this case, turning a little bit faster. <laughs> now, the earth is a big mass, so it doesn't have to turn very much faster, but that's where the momentum went. It didn't disappear. Right, it went um, somewhere. Yeah. And so you you cannot make it ever go away. And this is, again, with kinetic energy, it's really easy to hide energy in different forms. It's easy to convert kinetic energy to potential energy. It's easy to convert it to heat, which is still really kind of kinetic energy. It's just all shaking up in a lot of different directions because it's the individual atoms. You can do a lot of things to kinetic energy. There's no way to convert momentum into anything hidden. It's always there. By now, my mind was racing with all kinds of business situations I had found myself in over the years that seemed to have some implications from the science Marcus had laid out for me. It was too much to sort through at one time. I was more enthusiastic than ever about exploring these scientific terms fully to come to some kind of conclusion, even if it was not exactly the science. I was convinced that whatever learning we gained for the business world would be a powerful tool for those who are interested in building strong and growing businesses. The Physics Podcast is a production of Physics LLC, all rights reserved. Please join us at www.physics.com for additional resources to make your business strong, growing, and profitable. We have it down to a science.